Hi and welcome to Veg Out, the Toronto Vegetarian Podcast and radio show heard on CJRU 1280 AM, The Scope, Ryerson's campus and community station. This is your weekly discussion of all things vegan and vegetarian in Toronto. My name is Jeanette and today I'm joined by Steve. Hi. And if you don't know, the Toronto Vegetarian Association's mission is to inspire people to choose a healthier, greener and more compassionate lifestyle through plant-based eating. And on today's show, we're quite excited. We're going to be doing a series of interviews leading up to our vegetarian food festival known as Veg Food Fest. It is rapidly approaching. It's coming up uh, September 8th, 9th, and 10th. It is free. It is at Harborfront Centre once again this year. It is North America's largest vegetarian food festival. And today on the show, we're going to be joined by Jonathan Balcom, who is a biologist with a PhD in ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. He is also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, What a Fish Knows. He is currently the director of animal sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy in Washington, D.C. And if you were at Veg Food Fest last year, you may have seen his talk about What a Fish Knows. I was there, and it was... Uh, um, I think one of the highlights of the year for me last year, not only was did it have many calming, beautiful pictures of fishes, uh, but it was really uh, enlightening and a little bit scary, but in the end, hopeful. And Jonathan is going to be at uh, Veg Food Fest again this year. He is going to be speaking on Saturday, September 9th at noon. His talk will be taking place at the Studio Theatre in Harborfront Centre. So he's here to talk a little bit about uh, what a fish knows. So thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan? Great to be here. Thanks. Um, So the first thing I wanted to ask is just a little bit of terminology. In the book and in the talk that I saw last year, you refer to many fish as fishes. Um, Can you explain why you do that? Yeah, a core core message of my book and my message on fishes, as opposed to fish, is that they're individuals, unique individuals, and I feel like the word fish as a collective noun for different ones doesn't capture that individuality. It's like if I go hiking and I I don't say I saw seven mammal and 15 birds, um, I pluralize them. Now, I know there are exceptions to that. I saw several bison. I saw a few elk, for instance. Um, however, those are those are individuals, uh, and um, you know I don't I don't want to reinforce that that idea. Um, I don't want to reinforce the idea that fishes are anonymous things. I want to promote the notion, which is really supported by science, that they are individuals, they're beings, they are emotional, they have lives. Not they're not just alive. Uh, they uh, don't just have biology; they have biographies. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to share a, a quick story um, about. I've only been to the cottage once in my life. I think I was four or five. I went with an aunt and uncle and some cousins. And the only memory I have of going to the cottage is uh, my elder mean boy cousins. I think they, they captured, I think were minnows. They were small, tiny fishes, and they were in a jar. And they left them on the dock, and I think they were catching them to use for bait or some reason. And I remember going to the dock and seeing them... Um, swim around in the jar, and I just thought in my kid brain, they look really sad. So I, I took the jar and I dumped them back into the water, 
And I think at that point, I should have known that I was going to be vegan growing up. Um, uh, and then my cousins were really angry with me for releasing the, what they caught. Um, I have no idea, what again, what they were going to use them for. But uh, And I know that you share some similar stories in your book about your childhood memories of interactions with fishes. So how, how did these creatures come into your life? Well, I appreciate you sharing that. It reminds me of a, a neighbor I had just a few years ago, a young boy, very interested in animals, uh, certainly not, I don't think he was cruel or anything, but uh, he went and caught a bunch of fishes in a, in a little uh, body of water right on my neighborhood, and his mom was was there and uh, for a brief time, and, and I was keeping an eye on things. I'm, I'm always a little concerned when young boys are handling animals, and he came back with a jar of minnows, uh, and uh, I, I checked with his mom that, that he wouldn't leave them out, and unfortunately, about 10 minutes later, I noticed they were still out on the doorstep, and it was a sunny day, and some of them were already starting to float near the surface, so they were, they were very quickly going to die, so fortunately, that also turned out okay in the end. He, he hurried them back after I knocked on the door, and he, she, the mother reported that they, they survived. So, But um, those incidents are happening all the time, and, and bravo to you for your active animal liberation and keeping an eye on things, because those fishes probably wouldn't have survived much longer, especially if it was a sunny day. Like so many of us, um, my own experiences with fish started in, in a negative way. Um, I, I was taken fishing by the director of the summer camp, I relate this in, in the beginning of my book, and I was given a, a little primitive fishing rod, and I caught a bunch of fish that night. Sorry, caught a bunch of fishes that night. And uh, most of them were tossed back, but some of the bigger ones were kept for breakfast the next day. I was very troubled to see the, the hooks being pulled out of the fish's mouth by the other guy in the boat. I'd grown up. I was just an eight-year-old. And uh, even more disturbed to see him, you know, this otherwise kindly man plunging his long knife into their skulls to kill them. So uh, very disturbing. I, like you, have a strong empathy for animals gene, I guess. And so I was disturbed by what I saw, and I never really took to fishing, especially when it took time, came time to put hooks in the mouth myself. Is that when you developed sympathy for fish, or did that come a little bit later in some of your studies? Um, you know, we, we struggle with the mixed messages we get as children. Uh, we, we're taught to generally, hopefully, taught to be kind to animals. It's almost a, you know, it's a, it's a trope of our society, be kind to animals. And yet, we eat them. We're generally served them up, and a lot of kids, you can watch YouTube videos, there's a conflict children have, sometimes very young children. Um, they're, they're, they recognize there's a, there's a, there's a conflict here. Things are not matching up. So we, you know, our cultural relationship to animals is very compartmentalized. It's all, it's all about context. If it's a fish in an aquarium, we're generally not going to hook them and stab them in the head. If it's a fish who's going to end up on the dinner table, that's a whole different thing. So, uh, not to endorse aquariums by any stretch. There's, there's problems with that too, but um, it, it's complicated, and I think we get we get these mixed messages as children, and um, I think, uh, I do believe that we are naturally empathic, and we're naturally caring, and I think that we are taught, untaught those things, rather than being, uh, than starting out with a cruel child and teaching them to be humane. I mean, as the old saying goes, put a child in a room with a, with a bunny rabbit and an apple, I'll give you a million dollars if you come back an hour later and the child is petting the apple and eating the rabbit. 
Um, this kind of this reminds me of an event that happens in Toronto every year, and it's it's held at a community center. You, you may have heard of it, uh, but they do this uh, like urban fishing event, and activists have been trying for several years to get it removed from their programming. Uh, so basically, they bring in rainbow trout and just dump them in the swimming pool, and then they're which is not their natural environment. Um, and according to the website, the event is to promote health and wellness, and it's billed as a way for like urban kids and lower-income families to come and see the experience of nature and fishing. Um, have, it's just interesting that like that fishing is seen as this wholesome, natural activity, but in this case, it's actually happening in a, in a swimming pool. Have you heard of this happening, uh, this particular event, or do you have any thoughts on on that? I've certainly heard of similar events, uh, and I've heard of the accounts of the people who were very disturbed to to witness them when they were young. Um, I, I, I do agree that it's not really quite the right message about our interaction with nature that we should be uh, sharing with young people or people of any age. Um, it's it's interesting that you mentioned tr- trouts are actually used in this. Uh, trouts are, are were used in some pain studies, and I describe these in my book that uh, showed quite definitively that these that these fishes have three kinds of pain receptors in their in their bodies as we do they're sensitive to chemical heat and mechanical pain different types of receptors for each and that these animals uh, their behavior changes when they're in pain they recover more quickly if they're given a pain relieving drug so that's just one example of a study that fits what we would predict of an animal who feels pain. I mean, really, I think the onus of proof should be on those who would deny that they should feel pain. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people continue to labor under that delusion um, rather than the other way around because the fishes have so much more to lose if we assume that they do feel pain, if we assume that they don't. Uh, But the science strongly supports that they do, um, and uh, it's important that people be aware of that, and we should treat them accordingly. It's interesting, too, that uh, people think of... Well, both fin- fishing and hunting as sports. Uh, I've always thought in a sport you're supposed to be on equal footing with your opposite with your opposite side, and in these cases, uh, your life isn't in danger, especially with the, with most uh, freshwater fishing. Po- yeah, possibly Rick. with some of the uh, some of the deep the bigger fish in the ocean, it your life might be in danger. But even then, it's not equal footing. Yeah, and it's not equal footing in uh, commercial fishing either, of course. I mean, with the development of modern technologies uh, such as uh, helicopter surveillance, uh, sonar and radar technology, uh, the fishes don't really have much chance. It's like bobbing for apples. We can find them. The number of fishes that humans remove from the oceans today and freshwater habitats, for that matter, is not limited by how much effort we put in. It's limited by how many fishes are left to take. And it was estimated uh, in a study released in 2015 that we've lost about half of all marine life since 1970. And anyone who knows anything about the history of commercial fishing knows that we'd already lost quite a lot before then. So we need to change our relationship to these creatures. Mm-hmm. And you go into detail in the book describing the different kinds of uh, modern fishing. And I had to put the book down at one point because it was, it was quite upsetting to read. Um, and it's almost militaristic, like the the resources that they have. Like, again, it is, is not a fair fight, as, as to Steve's point. Yeah, and I, for anyone listening, I, I, uh, I want them to know that, that my book is primarily a celebration of the remarkable things that fishes can do, their, their cognitive abilities, their emotional abilities, their social lives, their sex lives, their awareness. 
Um, uh, but it is important to frame this in a context that will hopefully, in my view, help help them. I mean, I, I want this to also be a, a work of fish advocacy, and for it to be that, people need to know a little bit about what we're doing with fishes, and uh, that leads into the very closing of the book, which is uh, how we're beginning to protect them and what we can do in the future. Mm-hmm. And you said you wrote this book on behalf of fish, fishes. Yes, indeed I did. They're, I consider them my clients. Uh, I consider animals my clients. I've, I've had a career in animal protection. And while, uh, you know, the fishes don't come up and pat me on the back and thank me for the work I do, or my colleagues on their behalf for them, uh, they reward me in many other ways. And uh, they're worth it. I mean, uh, they, they enrich my life so much. An hour ago, I was watching them a beautiful lizard on a fence outside my back, um, my backyard. Uh, I live in South Florida now. Uh, it's called a night animal. Beautiful creature. I had him in my scope, or her. And uh, just watching this animal made me realize just how much we under we underestimate reptiles as well as fishes. Uh, we generally underestimate all animals, and science is continually revealing things about them that just a generation ago we would have thought was a, it was a fantasy. And so um, that's a, an ongoing theme. It's an exciting time to be uh, one who studies animals because there's lots of exciting revelations about them coming out all the time now. And that's one of the things I took away from your talk, or one of the main things was just like all the. I w- walked out of there like I had no idea. I had no idea that fishes could do this. And uh, one of the things I remember was that that fishes can recognize human faces as well as recognize each other or can distinguish between each other. Can you expand a little bit about that? Because I thought that was one of the interesting, one of the many interesting things from your book. Sure. Well, I can I can tell you, Jeanette, that when I started writing this book, I, I also had a lot of, I had no idea moments. Uh, I mean, I, I already was aware of a lot of very interesting science showing fishes to do things that I had not previously been aware of, and that was a big reason why I thought it was time to write this book. Uh, but uh, one of the exciting things about researching and writing a book is that there's new discoveries to be had all the time, and I was continually learning of new studies or studies that were earlier that I hadn't seen before that were just quite remarkable. Uh, to wit, is as you say, uh, fishes' ability to recognize humans by their faces. There's been more than one study on this, and uh, one of the best species to use, a very clever idea of scientists who are very clever and innovative, is to use the uh, archerfish, which is a species of fish that, that catches insect prey by squirting water at them as the insect flies by or perches on a nearby leaf. That in itself is pretty amazing behavior that's very well studied. Well, you have an animal who can squirt water at a target very accurately. What a perfect uh, subject to present them with stimuli such as pictures of human faces on a tablet or I think literally a computer tablet over the aquarium. You can quickly train them. They're good learners. You can quickly train them to squirt water at something, a familiar object versus an unfamiliar one, and you give them a food reward when they squirt at the, at the familiar and not at the unfamiliar. So you can train them that way very quickly. And then uh, they, the researchers who I think were in Germany presented, well, showed them faces, then human face, pictures of human faces that like, would become the familiar ones, and then they presented them afterwards with uh, those familiar, presumably familiar faces among bunches of unfamiliar faces, and the fishes uh, very easily squirted water at the face to, among the crowd that was one that they'd seen before. So very testable um, hypothesis, and that's the approach that they used. Uh, this, in a way, shouldn't surprise us quite so much, given that fishes routinely recognize each other as, as individuals. Uh, 
And they're very visual animals, so it's mostly vision that they're probably using, although they could be using other cues in some circumstances. Deep-sea anglerfishes identify species, their own species and other species, by the light patterns they they produce by flashing their their, their dor- usually part of their dorsal fin, which has uh, symbiotic bacteria strategically located in the body that they can um, flash uh, because these bacteria are light-emitting bacteria. So that's a little bit of a digression, but recognition is uh, is one of the many great cognitive skills that fishes have, and they're very good at it. There was also um, another part of the book that I just loved was just reading about fishes and their eyes and the behavior of their eyes and particularly the, what the flounder does. Um, can you talk a little? That was just one of my favorite parts of the book. Could you talk a little bit about uh, about that? Sure. Flounders are members of the flatfish group. Uh, they are the ones who, well, they're the fish who lies on the bottom um, and looking up, and they are ambush predators. They have very good camouflage. They can very quickly change colors to match their background, and that's pretty cool in itself. Uh, but in, in reference to their eyes, it helps to have both eyes uh, looking up so you can judge distance and see better. Uh, but, of course, if you're a fish, you've got one eye on one side of the body. If you're flat-bodied, which most fishes are, and one on the other side. So um, the way these guys have evolved uh, early in their life, one eye literally migrates from one side of the body to the other so that both of them are on one side. I mean, it, it, it makes for an awkward adolescence for these guys, it, and it doesn't look very attractive to us, but it's a very useful, very useful um, adaptation. And it can happen as quickly as five days, that eye migration in some species. And so um, whether they ever accidentally look themselves in the eye and give themselves a a startle, I don't know if that ever happens. But uh, I was watching one in uh, Hawaii just a couple of months ago, and they're really beautiful to watch the way they they undulate the edges of their fins, which kind of circle their body to move from A to B. And then when they stop, I mean, when this little peacock flounder stopped, it was like that fish just disappeared. I mean, it was incredibly closely matched to the background, which, of course, is not just good for avoiding uh, detection from a potential prey who's maybe swimming over you, but also avoiding detection from potential predators. This is something you hear all the time. Um, I'm vegetarian, but I eat fish. So it's like <laughs> fish is almost like you get a pass for eating fish. It's like like they're another kind of vegetable almost. Um, why, why do we see fishes as lower species? Right. It's a great question, really important one. I think it reflects the alienation we've had from fishes. And, and I think the reason for that alienation is, is that uh, they are, or at least have been in, in throughout history, out of our view. Um, and so out of our mind. You could gaze across uh, an ocean from the beach or a lake, and there may be thousands or tens of thousands of fishes just within inches of the surface of that water, but you're not seeing them. They're out of view, and so that creates um, alienation, and, 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 a, and, a, and a, we, we don't know them. We don't know them well, and things we don't know we often fear or we misunderstand or we underestimate. And fishes have some other disadvantages. They They don't blink. Uh, would just something as simple as that may make them seem more robotic and less sensitive. I mean, the fact is they've evolved in water. Their eyes are constantly bathed in liquid. They don't need to blink. We blink to get water out of our eyes from our tear ducts. So 
They also make a lot of sounds underwater, but we don't generally hear them in the air because those sounds are, just, are evolved to propagate in, in, in an aqueous medium. So that's just some of the uh, disadvantages they had in terms of triggering our sympathy. So, of course, we fail to show sympathy sometimes often for mammals and birds on land if we think uh, we want to eat them, uh, for instance. So it's more complicated than that. But I do think a big part of why we've relegated fishes to the cellar of the vertebrate groups is that we just haven't known them as well. We haven't seen them. We haven't had to think about them. And when we do think about them it's usually and see them, it's usually when we've taken them out of their habitat and they're gasping in the air or they're already dead at the supermarket. It just further uh, alienates us from them. They, uh, so I, I think those are the disadvantages. And uh, the science it just doesn't support the kind of dim view we've had of fishes. And that's a big part of what I'm writing about in this book. Yeah, uh, another thing that uh, sometimes comes up lately is uh, the concept of uh, you're aware of Isinglass, and it's used in the uh, alcohol uh, yeah. in alcohol alcoholic beverages. Isinglass, yeah. uh, uh, that's not on the radar of most vegans, and uh, or uh, on many vegans, I should say. I, I don't don't know that it's most necessarily, but. Uh, and I've been trying to raise people's awareness on that one. It's uh, hard to get people's heads around it sometimes. Well, it's just one of those yeah. uh, many ways that we uh, we use animals. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's to, be, to be vegan, I think vegan is about doing our best. And if someone's yeah. not aware of the eyes and glass, uh, then they're just not aware. So I think we can make them aware of that. Just yeah. for listeners, uh, eyes and glass is a... Is a is a substance that is derived from fish swim bladders. Fishes have, uh, a lot of them, or most of them, have swim bladders, which is a, a gas-filled sac inside the body, which they can control buoyancy with. Very useful oh, thing to okay. have. So it is used in the making of beer and I think possibly wine as well. There are some uh, alcohol manufacturers uh, that uh, openly declare that they have gone vegan or they are vegan in their ingredients. I believe Guinness is one of the latest to that table, uh, whether they've actually implemented it yet, but it's within a year of, of uh, this time, either it happened or it's about to happen, that they are changing their manufacture method to, to exclude Isinglass. It's just an example of an old material that we don't really need to use anymore. It's just the inertia of having used them for hundreds of years that it's still there. Yeah, uh, my understanding is it's also in, used in the production of some whiskeys and certainly ciders as well as, as the uh, beer and wine. I suppose uh, I might have known that if I drank yeah. a lot of whiskey, but I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm a cider drinker myself, but uh, it's... Uh, Good stuff. Yeah, but it, it tends to be not used by the craft brewers with either beer or, or cider uh, because the... Uh, it seems its use is when they produce too much yeast, they add the Isinglass, the uh, yeast clings to it, and then it'll catch in a filter. So so it's not actually in the drink you're drinking, but it's used in the production and therefore is objectionable to anybody who's really thinking about these things. Uh, yes, and there is a website called Barnivore, uh, which is, is quite extensive. It has been documenting... Um, uh, products that are vegan friendly, so definitely bookmark. I've heard that. of that one. Yes, yes. Um, or you can just drink kombucha. And also, <laughs> indeed, uh, this kind of brings up the notion of what people can do if they're hearing more about fishes, or if they're hearing more about the devastation of of 
fishing popu- or fish populations. Um, what are some things people can do to move away from eating fish? Do you have any advice that you give people? Are there recipes? Or th- We talk a lot about food on this podcast, by the way. So are, is there anything that you can kind of offer people? Uh, you know, is there such a thing as sustainable fishing? You know, I know that's a big question, but um, what, well, what can you tell people? sustainable from the fish's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> They would all disagree. They would say, "No, none of it, none of it's fish friendly. Yeah. Uh, none of none of the catching and eating of us." Um, yes, I can mention a few things. I mean, I mean, in terms of what people can do, obviously, the the best way someone can help fishes in the most immediate, direct way is, is not to eat them. Uh, whenever we buy products, we tell the manufacturer, "Whatever you did to get it there, do it again." And uh, if people don't like commercial fishing and and what commercial fishing does to fishes, if people don't like even recreational fishing, uh, then um, uh, but certainly in, t- in the terms of commercial fishing, what ends up in the supermarket, don't go and buy it because uh, you're only funding funding those industries. As for alternatives to eating fishes, there's certainly more coming out. And uh, with the techno- rise of technology of plant-based meats and uh, in vitro meats now beginning to come into the picture, uh, we're going to see some probably dramatic changes in that sector in the coming years. I went to the offices of New Wave Foods back in uh, April. They're, they're in uh, California, and they are developing plant-based uh, seafood. They have uh, shrimp already going out on the market, which they hope to be on retail stores nationwide here in the United States uh, by uh, sometime in 2018, so just next year. Um, and uh, there's another newer one called Sinless Foods, which is developing in vitro, so lab-grown fish meat, actual fish tissue, but not from a living once respiring and then expiring fish taken out of the, the oceans or the fresh waters, but uh, all lab-grown. Uh, and the technology is advancing very quickly. I think this is going to be, going to be significant contributors to uh, us turning our sights away from fishes in the wild or in aquaculture and uh, instead eating eating foods that are plant-based and or in vitro, cell-grown, lab-grown. In Canada, we have a garden. You can get fishless fillets. I, I'll just mention, if I may, yeah. uh, may I mention one, Jeanette? Of course, yes. Yeah, I was uh, I was at a place called, in Sydney, Australia, two years ago, um, I, I, possibly, certainly Australia's first, if not the world's first, uh, vegan fish and chip shop called Bliss and Chips. And I'm pretty sure, I think they were using garden there um, for their fish, as their supply. Uh, so certainly Gardein is, is becoming worldwide available. It's certainly widely available here now in supermarkets here in the United States. And there's Sophie's Kitchen um, and some, some others that are beginning to appear as well. So, yeah, there are, there are already uh, options on the, on the market. Um, China is a very advanced in producing um, plant-based uh, animal animal products, so they're not animal products; they're plant-based substitutes and uh, fish included. I've I've had tried some fish products that are very tasty. Uh, well, I'm afraid we have to wrap up now. Um, we can talk to you for probably another couple of hours, actually. Um, but the okay. the book was <laughs> the book was fascinating, and uh, again, I'm really looking forward to your talk this year at Veg Food Fest. You're going to be speaking on Saturday, September 9th at noon. Uh, it's in the Studio Theater at Harborfront Center. Make, if it's at noon, make sure you get there early so that you can get a seat because there are often lineups and they often close the door with people outside waiting. So, are you going to be doing a, a book signing uh, as well? Yes, I'll have books there and certainly happy to sign them for anyone who wants one. 
Excellent. And people can find you online. Uh, uh, where, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at my website, which is jonathan-balcom.com. Um, you can also find me on uh, Facebook and Instagram. I have a new Facebook. I have an author fan page by, with my name, but I also have a new, a relatively new Facebook page called Waterfish Knows. So that's another place I welcome people to go. Uh, I also produce a monthly newsletter called All Things Fish. If people go to my website, they can easily subscribe from there. Great. Well, excellent. Thanks so much for joining us today on Veg Out. We're really, really happy that we uh, made the time to have you on, that, that you made the time for us. So thanks so much. Well, thank you both for having me. Thanks, Jonathan. You've been listening to Veg Out, the Toronto Vegetarian Podcast and radio show heard on CJRU 1280 AM, The Scope. You can listen to past episodes of Veg Out on our website, veg.ca. And if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, you can email us. The address is tva at veg.ca. And until next week, Veg Out.